podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, overseeing yet again a distributed operations operation version of Intrepid Podcast. But I'm so happy to be joined by two of my favorite podcast editors, Jess Davis and Michael Nesbitt. And today we're going to talk about sanctions. Certainly we've talked about the U.S. sanctions, the sanctions that Donald Trump likes to throw on us occasionally, I guess when he's um, upset, which seems to be all the time. But that's, again, a different that's actually a different podcast series go go to the law fair for those kinds of, of fun and games. But we, I, we thought it'd be useful to actually have a discussion about sanctions because they're a very important foreign policy tool. We hear about sanctions a lot, whether it's uh, the sanctions on Iran, the Magnitsky sanctions for human rights purposes. And of course, there's national security implications to this as well. Uh, you know, the sanctions violations have to be investigated that, you know, they're supposed to have national security effects. So I'm really excited that you guys could join me today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. So, Mike, why don't we start with you? What actually is a sanction? What is a sanction in Canadian law? Oh, my gosh. It's such a good question. And it, I'm going to apologize. I only have good questions, Mike. I know. It is, especially all those foreign affairs, global affairs now. People out there, I'm going to apologize in advance because my three-minute answer is not going to do this justice. But we have all sorts of, actually, uh, sanctions regimes. So the ones that your listeners might be most familiar with, if you don't know this area of law, will be the Magnitsky Act ones, right? So those are the ones that came in in 2017 in response to the global Magnitsky um, activity to try to get sanctions against um, countries that perform serious human rights violations or, or killing of journalists. Uh, and this was led by the fellow Bill Browder, who's, who's, I believe it was his tax attorney, was killed in Russia. And so he wanted, he noticed that, you know, one of the most, most effective things you could do to counter Russia was to put sanctions on the individuals who uh, were at the top of the heap, uh, because that's what they noticed. But in Canada, since 1992, we've had what's called our Special Economics Measures Act. And that, for the most part, is if you've heard in the past of Canadian sanctions, that's what uh, is probably implicated. We also have a set of sanctions that completely or seems to completely overlap in many ways, although not in the details always, with our SEMA, that's the Special Econo Economic Measures Act sanctions, which are, is there UN sanctions? So that's where we have uh, the UN Security Council will say, thou shalt have sanctions on X country, for example, Iran in the past. And so we, in order to implement our UN obligations, we have our UN Act sanctions as well. The result is you can have two sets of sanctions with a lot of overlap, one under the SEMA and one under the UN Act, both on Iran. So things can get a little bit complicated. And of course, you could have Magnitsky Act sanctions on some of the individuals in Iran too. On top of that, we do have other stuff that is sometimes implicated. We have a um, import uh, and export measures act so where we we essentially prohibit the trade of dual use items out of canada etc you know we can't import some things you can't export some things or you can't dual use or nuclear sanctions to iran we can't or uh, goods to iran we can't send etc so a whole right, bunch of I regimes was, are implicated yeah because i was thinking of the missile technology control regime is, is that a, a is that a considered to be a, a kind of sanction yeah, I, it it sort of depends on I guess how you how you want to define it, but I, I'd put it all in the same 
area, right? Which is that essentially we say if you're a Canadian or a Canadian or someone operating off Canadian territory, there's certain things you can't export. You can't do, you can't trade um, in some cases, right? So it's not, and it's not just good. It's, it could be that as the case we're going to discuss, it could be, you just, our banks can't conduct or do wire transfers to banks in Syria or individuals in Syria or something like that. But any of these regimes, and, and as I said, there's, you know, at least four of them uh, that implicate these sort of trade limitations can, I think, can be fairly considered sort of part of our broader sanctions regime. So the other kind of interesting thing there that you said is that the, our legislation, the, the big legislation for this, I mean, Magnitsky aside, um, came around in 1992. That That's actually quite late. Was, was this really, you know, is sanctions kind of a new business for Canada and Canadian foreign policy? Yeah, it's it's something that's been around in international affairs for quite some time, but it's really not even that big in international relations, and in at least in the modern way we enact and understand them, right? I mean, the, the big impetus for modern sanctions was the uh, fairly effective, what were viewed as fairly effective sanctions against the apartheid South Africa regime in the 1980s, which, which many think led to the economic collapse and then downfall of the apartheid South Africa regime, right? And so after that, you saw in the 20 subsequent years, a huge increase in the use of sanctions, particularly with the U.S., but following along from the U.S., Canada, uh, Western Europe, and then our allies like Australia and others enacting these sanctions. So, yeah, we're really only talking in the last, for Canada in particular, in the last 30 years. And then on top of that, we haven't really enforced our sanctions regime. So we have, before the case we're going to discuss today, we have one case ever. It was out of my neck of the woods out of Edmonton. It was a company that was sending um, Viton O-rings, which are apparently are something that can be used essentially washers in machines, but could also be used in nuclear centrifuges. Uh, so they weren't allowed to send them to Iran and they tried to send them to Iran. And that was the only prosecution we ever have. And essentially we only got it because rather than doing what most companies do, which is send it to um, Dubai and have it transshipped into Iran, they put on the packing slip, send it directly to Iran in violation of our sanctions, essentially. So we managed to catch it at the border. But so we don't what's have... up with Edmonton, though, Mike? Because like I, th- I feel like there's like a whole side podcast here on like Edmonton <laughs> and national security issues. It yes. came up in one of our prior episodes not so long ago, so... <laughs> um, I just I just feel the need to point that out. But um, one of the things I just want to point out before we get um, into into kind of some of the cases, and I want to bring Jess in here too. And so there's the but there's different kinds. It's like so we talked about the different legal regimes, but also there's different targets, right? The, so there's sanctions which target the actual states. There are sanctions that target certain technologies, and then there's sanctions that target individuals. And are you saying that we're not really good at enforcing any of those? Yeah, it seems to, it, at least it seems to be the case. So I don't know how much is being caught at the border and sort of nothing's happening. It's just being turned around and sent back to a Canadian shipper and sort of they're being reminded you can't, you know, turns out this is a dual use product. It was, you can't send it to a country. We don't, in that, in that regard, I, I can't really tell you. I can say we have been called out, as we discussed in the last episode, by um, a numerous U.S. intelligence agencies, by international agencies, by our own agencies in Canada for being a hotbed for sanctions busting, which is sort of transshipping, right? So we send something to Mongolia or Dubai and then on to Iran or a country that's been sanctioned. And again, we have one, but this will be our second prosecution ever. The one we have was really a slap on the wrist. Um, I believe they called it, the court called it in the guilty plea agreement, an innocent thing, despite the fact that 
all public evidence suggests that the attempt was to transship the items, that is to do with subterfuge, what they failed to do um, without it. And, and so nevertheless, they get a fairly low penalty in that case. So in, in that regard, yeah, it looks like we have a lot of sanctions, which we make a really big deal about, which are prime ministers, and this is any prime minister, current prime minister, former prime ministers, make a big deal. Now we're going hard after Iran or Syria or Venezuela or whatever the case might be. And then we hear from intelligence agencies that uh, sanctions busting activity is happening and we see zero prosecutions. Yeah, and part of the reason why Canada is being called out for being a transshipment point for sanctions is because we have a good reputation in the international community for being a law-abiding country where we have laws on the books about all this kind of stuff. So the assumption is that we are enforcing those sanctions and those measures. But fundamentally, I think that's not happening. And this is why bad actors are taking advantage of it. And on the enforcement piece, the enforcement that is happening is happening by private sector entities. So it's financial institutions, specifically on the sanctioning of individuals, but on some countries and some some specific technologies that are the ones who are responsible for enforcing those sanctions. I'm not sure that that's appropriate. Um, they do a decent job of it, but enforcement, uh, like law enforcement is not their mandate. Um, my view is very much that we need to be much better at investigating and making and prosecuting sanctions evasion. Um, but it also, to me, comes down to the broader issue of the complexity of some of these challenges. So, um, you know, money laundering, corruption, terrorist financing are all things that, in my view, uh, we're not good at prosecuting in this country. And I think that part of it comes from maybe a lack of investigative expertise, a lack of prosecutorial expertise on these issues. And this is something that I feel vehemently that we need to get much, much better at because the future of Canada's economy is to be a connected financial uh, player. But if we're not better at this, that's not going to happen. Perhaps I can just add, it, it's not like there are no economic costs to this either, right? So when we have a sanctions regime, like we do, with a multiple overlapping regimes, with lists of, so our listing even is different than the U.S. The U.S. will identify an individual, they'll give pseudonyms for the individual, and then they'll give a paragraph, which indicates why the person is listed, um, usually a little bit of a justification. In Canada, we, we offer a name no age, no passport information, nothing. And so, so that's expensive if you're a bank and you take seriously your obligations, as Jess says. And the bank, the big banks, the big Canadian banks do take this seriously, which means they're spending hundreds of thousand dollars or more implementing our legislation every time we make a change to that legislation. And they're spending even more if it's the case that you get, you know, Mike Nesbitt, ends up on the sanctions list. Well, is that the Mike Nesbitt in Scotland or Ireland or the guy in Canada? Which one are we talking about? How do you figure that out? Do we just do we just refuse bank services to all these innocent Mike Nesbitts out there or do we try to figure out who it is? So really expensive process. So when we when we fail to enforce, it's not just that we're failing to enforce and we sort of have this rule of law problem, we are sort of failing the international community. It's also that the bad actors are doing nothing uh, about this because we're not going to enforce it. And it's costing the good actors, which is our uh, usually medium and large businesses, a lot of money in trying to do the enforcement themselves. And that seems fundamentally unfair. Jess, I know you've done a little bit of work here on enforcement with regards to terrorism sanctions and stuff like that. Do you agree? Are we actually, are the banks doing a good job in this way? So 
I would say that the banks are exceptionally risk averse in terms of this. So what Mike's saying too, um, in terms of the, the lack of additional bio data on our sanctions list does mean that there's a risk of innocent people being debanked or essentially de-risked from the financial sector. Um, the banks will avoid doing any sort of transactions with individuals who may or may not be under sanctions. So um, I would definitely agree with everything that Mike has said there. Because, you know, fundamentally, banks don't want to do business with a company that's sanctioned by Canada or by any other country. But by not providing that information, we're really opening it up to a much broader um, group of individuals than it needs to be. And we've seen it on a, if I can just add, we've seen it on a countrywide basis too. So we put sanctions on Libya and all the large industries that have databases and individuals working on this get to work and make sure that they're not providing banking services to Libya, for example, right? And then we remove the sanctions from Libya. And what do the banks do? Nothing for a long time. Why do they do that? Well, they have two options. One is to go through the process all over again, only to worry about sanctions again, and it costs them a fortune, and they're worried about criminal sanctions themselves and charges for being um, for running afoul of our legislation. Or they say, you know, as Jeff says, the conservative approach is just say, forget it. We're not removing our internal controls for this kind of stuff. What does that mean? Well, in practice, it means you have a bunch of people who are debanked, possibly across the nation. But on top of that, it means that Canadian businesses who are looking to get into quickly into a new market are prevented from doing so in large cases, um, in, in large part, because for essentially financial restrictions, but not ones that are necessarily required by law, but ones that are in place because of the procedures that we have essentially failed to um, implement to protect against this sort of behavior. Right. And we've seen in the United States, actually, prosecutors have been quite ambitious going after banks who are seen as trying to help ev- evade Iran sanctions. And I can't help but remember, but the fact that, you know, the whole Meng Wenzhou case, which has been so problematic for Canada generally, that actually started with accusations that she was helping to thwart sanctions on Iran and I believe had committed bank fraud in doing so. Um, and there was some, you know, discussion as to whether or not that had actually been the result of some of the actual sanctions investigations that have been going on by U.S. prosecutors for banks. So, you know, it, it's kind of interesting to see the banks really do get a bad rap for when they do these kinds of things. But is, is it common for Canada to arrest individuals uh, for sanctions violations in other countries? So first of all, it's not common for Canadians to arrest Canadians on sanctions. So as I said, this is we're talking about right now, we're going to be talking about our first case ever um, where someone has really been arrested and, and charged with our sanctions violation. So no, it's this not This is going to be the big finish at the end of the podcast, right? Right. But, uh, but on top of that we our legislation is very much different for good and bad than the american so the american legislation is truly extraterritorial they can enforce their laws against foreign citizens dealing from foreign lands with other foreign lands so a mongolian that deals with iran if uh, the U.S. has sanctions that says you can't deal with Iran, then they can go over after that Mongolian citizen in American courts for dealing with Iran. We cannot do that. So our legislation only applies to, even if we sanction Iran, what we're doing is we're not criminalizing behavior extraterritorial in the, extraterritorially in the same way. What we're saying is if you're a Canadian citizen or you're operating from Canada, 
then you are prohibited from doing business. So the only way we could get someone abroad, say, would be as if it was a Canadian citizen operating from abroad um, dealing with Iran. And again, we have not, I mean, we're not getting the people in Canada. We're certainly not getting people operating abroad that might be caught by this legislation. Okay, so we've we've put up, Mike, you've been teasing us about this case that's kind of come up to the courts. Um, Why don't you give us the rundown of what's happening? So right now we have out of Halifax, the first individual who's been arrested and charged, I'm just going to call it criminally. Um, It it might technically be quasi-criminally, but that's something that most of your listeners don't have to worry about. Charged under our sanctions legislation, in particular our SEMA sanctions. And then, as we already said, SEMA will sort of say, this is a power to enact sanctions. And then you'll have regulations under that general SEMA scheme that says um, what you can do with respect to Syria. And then you'll have separate ones with respect to Iran and separate ones with respect to Venezuela and North Korea and Russia and so on. And so this is the first individual who's been arrested and charged and faces up to five years in jail at least for the sanctions charges, for violating sanctions, uh, Canadian sanctions that were put in place in, uh, I want to say, 2011, right at the outset of the conflict in Syria, and prohibit, actually they were very wide, so prohibit most sort of trade, including financial services with Syria. And so he was accused of sending money to individuals or banks in Syria. And so, yeah, so this is our, our first arrest. Uh, and it's sort of going on now in Halifax or out of Halifax, the case. As I understand it from the most recent reporting, the defense is going to mount a defense, which is to say they're not going to plead not guilty. And we, the only other case we have in the past, which was against a company again, uh, but they that would ended up being a guilty plea with an agreed upon um, punishment of I think it was a hundred. I want to say it was fifty or a hundred thousand dollars fine. So this will be the real first case where we have our legislation tested. And so when you said at the outset, Stephanie, that perhaps this might involve national security, well, absolutely it will, because we're going to be talking about intelligence to evidence probably. So uh, they executed a warrant to get a lot of this information off his computer. What was the basis of that warrant? Probably challenge it. Where did you get the information? Well, it sounds an awful lot like we might have gotten at least some of this information from either security services in Canada or outside of Canada. Why would we think outside of Canada? Well, as we've said many times, first of all, our operations tend to be seeded in many cases from, at least in part, from information outside of Canada. But we also know this individual has a asset freeze out of the EU because the EU has also found him in violation of EU sanctions, which is ahead of the Canadian. So it it may be that the warrant is replete with information that Canadians may not wish to let out. So we have our first intelligence to evidence warrant problem there. And then we have have a, a possible concern about the listing process. So what it sounds like they've done in this case case is if I remember the reporting correctly, originally they were talking about him sending money directly to an individual and that has since changed. And so we don't know the reason for that change uh, where they're saying now that the money was just sent to Syria full stop in violation of the sanctions. The best reason for that is simply is just easier to prove. So of course they'd go that route. But the alternative is that uh, you could challenge the listing regime in the sanctions regime. And we've never had a challenge to that. And it's frankly, I'm not going to say it's going to be overturned. 
good lawyers who have put it in place, but but it's, it is ripe for challenge in some ways. And I think one of the ways it's most ripe for challenge is with respect to the listing of individuals. And so that might be why we see in this case, they're not saying you listed an individual, you weren't allowed to trade with them or send them money. We're just saying we're listing a country because it's easier to justify the listing of a country, right? We just point to Syria and say, look, it was the middle of civil war. The Assad regime was, sounds like these the money was going to the Assad regime. They were clearly in violation of a variety of international criminal and human rights and other laws um, and so on. How easy is it for someone being charged? You, you mentioned that, okay, it's so the first time this legislation has been tested. I mean, presumably they have the financial information, so you can just kind of, you know, provided the warrant passes the the kind of hellacious process that we had that we talked about on a previous episode. How easy will it be for this person to be effectively say, well, no, I was sending money to my grandma or to a charity or things like this? Is it the fact that the actual uh, charges are relatively easy to prove, but the fact that we're going to have to cross several evidentiary hurdles to get there is what's probably going to stall this, uh, or at least a speedy prosecution? Yeah. I mean, I think in, in many ways you're thinking, I don't know if, if my guess is you're sort of thinking, look, my one option for defense is sort of, and you see this sometimes in, in cases where you have possession of something, right? So you're caught in possession of something. In this case, he's essentially in possession of money that there will be bank information to say it's been sent to someone else. And so how do you challenge that? Well, it's hard to say, you know, the weapons on me weren't mine. So you, you, you say, well, if I'm going to be found guilty anyways, I may as well challenge the process. So, so it might be here that we, you know, we're just saying, well, you may as well not plead guilty because I'm getting five years either way. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, challenge it and see if I can go after the, the validity of the warrant or the constitutionality of the regime, et cetera. And it may be that if you know, all the information gets out and we're within Jordan timelines, so there's no concerns there, and they go out with the trial, then we'll see whether... Uh, whether the trial continues or not. But the one, I think you've hit on the one point where they might uh, continue to challenge it, which is that you've seen this with respect to when we talk about um, terrorist travel, right? Stephanie, you've mentioned a couple of times, well, why don't we just have a regime that says you can't go to Syria? And one I mean, of the I have response, great ideas. I think it's a great idea, but you know. Yeah, no, it, you know, it's, it's a, and we're starting to see lots of people sort of try to come up with innovative ways to do that. And, and, but one of the problems will be, well, there's reasonable reasons to go to Syria, right? So we have an army general's son who went to work with the Kurds in Syria. So if you just had a ban on going to Syria, he's now being charged with terrorist legislation, right? And he came back and was all over the CBC talking about it. Um, you, you, you can see, what about, the, what about anyone who works for the Red Cross, who in the early days was providing humanitarian assistance? So you need to find a way to build in these legitimate reasons for being in the territory, perhaps, right? And you see the same thing with this legislation. Might there be legitimate reasons for sending money to Syria? Humanitarian reasons. I was sending it to the Red Cross in Syria because the international money wasn't getting into the Red Cross in Syria. I was sending it to my family whatever the case might be. Does that hold up in court? I don't know. But yeah, I think you've hit on one of the areas where they're going to say, I was just sending it to my grandma. My grandma's a really nice person. She couldn't buy food. It was still possible to buy food there. How are you criminalizing? She needed $100,000 to buy food. 
Yeah, and I right. think the, the important point here too is to note that there are exceptions in Canada's SEMA sanctions for Syria for humanitarian efforts and goods and for non-commercial remittances of $40,000 or less. I think where things fall apart for this individual is that the transaction that occurred was to a commercial entity. So then you're going to have to start unpacking that. But, but again, it is possible to make the argument that I had to send this money to this company because they're one of the only ones that could receive funds at the time. Like, And then it gets into the complexities of a financial investigation, which we've talked about, we're not great at. So it should be very interesting. So grandma could theoretically have a company. Yeah, it, it's yeah. probably not a winning argument, right? But it's just, just it's you're throwing things at a wall just to see what it, sticks. Yeah, yeah, that's. I should be a lawyer. What is see. what I'm learning from this. <laughs> it's essentially um, what we teach lawyers. Yes. So, Mike, um, one of the things you've said on this podcast before is that you know we have good prosecutors, we have charges we just may not be as bold as we should be when it comes to prosecuting national security offenses, perhaps uh, like the kind that this individual has engaged in. And I'm wondering, uh, so do you see this prosecution as a good idea? Uh, Do you think this is a a positive step forward? And Jess, if you have any views on this, I'd like to hear it too. So I'll say two things there. The first is the easier answer is yes, it's absolutely a positive step forward. We have to start enforcing our legislation. It can't be that we have legislation on the books that we make no effort to enforce. It makes us look bad internationally. Uh, It means that essentially the legislation is an empty vessel in terms of actual enforcement, but it's costing our private sector millions of dollars in order to implement. It just makes no sense to have this legislation if we're not going to take seriously the possibility of enforcing at least from time to time. So yes, this is this is good news and it's what makes it interesting and we might see the regime upheld or we might see some little holes in the regime. So all of that is what makes it interesting. I want to make a small distinction in this case between what I've said in the past, which is that prosecutors will have zero experience with this, right? So while they do have some experience now with terrorism, with certainly with serious crimes, they will not uh, necessarily have experience or even an understanding of this. And we've seen that in, I mean, to a limited extent in money trials, as Jess has mentioned, but we've also seen it in, frankly, in with respect to enforcement of other regulatory um, national offenses. So just, just stuff we don't do often isn't always well understood. And then we have a completely different process for how sanctions are formed and listings are made and investigated, which operates out of Global Affairs Canada in the first instance, and not um, in the same way that the criminal code is listed, with is, which involves interagency consultations, uh, secret evidence from all sorts of places, etc. And so I'm, I think it's I don't think it's unreasonable to say I am more concerned about our capacity to enforce our sanctions legislation, at least until we've seen more than I am other. Again, that's not to say this might be a slam dunk case. It might be we're very good at it, but I don't have the same confidence in our capacity that I do in other areas. And if I can give you a quote from the most recent article um, on this case, it was, it was the PPSC was asked about it and they said, look, we can't talk about it because it's for the courts, which is the proper answer. You have to go to the, if you're a journalist, you have to go to the prosecutors and the prosecutors have to say that in response. They say, one thing we will say is it's quote, meant to be primarily persuasive and preventive in nature. And so that might be a throwaway line, 
not sure why they'd add it if it was just a throwaway to we can't say anything. Uh, it might be a accurate description of what criminal law is in generally. That is actually, you know, without spending two hours on legal theory and punishment. I mean, if you're going to use nine words to describe criminal law, say primarily persuasive and preventive in nature, and then we enforce it if someone runs afoul, that's about it, right? So maybe you're just describing criminal law, but it looks a little bit like the some of the rhetoric around this legislation that we've seen in the past, which is, Look, the idea is just to sort of persuade people not to deal with Iran, to tell them we'd not, we don't want to. It's supposed to be preventive. And then once you get to pass the preventive stage, we don't enforce it. And if that's the implication, or if that's a, a subconscious or implicit element that PPSC is, is getting from somewhere, um, I'd be surprised if it came just from them, but it might have. But um, if if that's what's happening, then it runs into exactly this concern, which is that we don't really understand the legislation or why it is criminal or quasi-criminal in nature, and we're not really taking seriously then uh, the enforcement part of it, right? We're talking about it being persuasive and preventive rather than talking about enforcement. So uh, again, no idea what that actually means, but it, 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 when it, it jumped off the page to me as someone who has seen that sort of attitude in the past towards sanctions. So I guess my final question to you then, Mike, and, and just feel free to ask a final question or make a final point too, but um, if, if you were advising the PPSC, the Public Prosecution Service of Canada, on how to build capacity, would you be turning to our allies? Would you be looking to similar systems like the UK, US, well, even though they have a different system, they're in, they have far more reaching powers, for advice on how what they should be doing to bring this forward? Absolutely. And so that could be at the prosecution, but I, I think more broadly, this is a regime that needs a more fundamental shakeup. And I think one of the places we would look is to what our allies are doing. So in the last 10 years, the Brits in particular have essentially redone how they list and investigate and then enforce sanctions. And so it might be interesting to look at what they did, why they did it, whether it's been effective. We have essentially a trial period where they've tried it out for close to a decade where we could learn something from. And then the Americans are for better or worse, uh, and sometimes we don't like the way they enforce, especially their extraterritorial sanctions. Uh, thinking here of Helms-Burton-type sanctions against Canadians for dealing with Cuba, but they are really good at it, right? The least you can say is this is, it's operated mostly out of treasury. You have people with real capacity who are well-trained uh, to ensure the, the sanctity of the whole process from the initial investigative stages through to the charges at the end. And if I can make one recommendation uh, that we need to, I think, consider, it's we have essentially a, a it's quasi-criminal, but it's really a criminal regime where we say you get five years in prison. Uh, the, the, the American system is effective in large part because they also have a civil system, which is you want to go after a company, right? That that fifty or $100,000 fine I spoke of doesn't mean a whole lot. The $5 billion fines you're seeing the U.S. levy, uh, that's going to change behavior. And then you also only have to prove things on balance probability, not beyond a reasonable doubt. So we should be thinking, I think, seriously about a, a civil enforcement of these sort of things as well. 
That's a really interesting suggestion, Mike. And I think the last thing that I would say on this is that, you know, this case is not the only case of Canadian companies or Canadian individuals being called out for potentially violating sanctions. The United Nations has issued reports saying that Canadian companies have, have violated sanctions in South Sudan and Libya, and there's been little to no reaction from Canadian authorities on that. I think that's one of the places where we need to start looking in terms of building capacity and taking action. Well, um, you know, a, th- a constant theme of our podcast, other than intelligence to evidence, is also we need to get better at this. So there we are. Let's just add that to our list of things to get better at. Uh, from the podcast peanut gallery and um, but we'll leave it there for today thank you for this quick rundown of of some sanction issues and this really interesting case that's going to be coming up look forward to following it and uh, hearing what you guys have to say about it as it probably extremely slowly moves through the court so thanks guys my pleasure thank you